Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, continuing our series this week in the 100 Years of Fascism. This week I'm talking about the 2000s. Now the 2000s, like all of the decades that have happened since the 1940s, the peak of the power of fascism and the extreme right wing in general, were a period of growth, renewal, uh, you know, an attempt to return to that peak of power that the extreme right wing experienced. Unfortunately, for those of you living in the present, you know that this particular attempt to return to some of that power was ultimately successful in this decade. Uh, the 2000s were a period of staging for the ultimate successes of the extreme right wing that were seen in the 2010s, which I'll get to next week. As per usual in these, you know, sort of short weekly discussions of the history of fascism during one decade or another, I'm going to be focusing on particular experiences and particular countries. Obviously, that doesn't mean that the other countries in the world were not also experiencing fascism or the rise of the extreme right wing. In fact, if I miss a very significant or clear example, let me know uh, and I will correct it. Uh, the last thing that I want to say at the beginning of this episode is that I think I'm going to continue this uh, sort of bi-weekly release schedule. Uh, so I'm going to be releasing a sort of um, general content episode on Tuesdays and then the regular weekly news update on Thursdays. So uh, I'm going to stick with that for a while. So moving on to the history of fascism in the 2000s, this was a time of uh, surprising growth and return for just pretty blatantly fascistic or at least like fascophilic organizations in especially Europe and the United States at the time. Uh, one of these examples is the Freedom Party of Austria, which entered government in that country for the second time, but for the first time as a major power holder in government. Uh, the Freedom Party in Austria is one that is endorsed by and was initially led by Nazi veterans, uh, and that up until very recently actually had portraits of Austrian Nazi officials in its party headquarters. This is just like a right-wing party uh, that was previously essentially banned from government by the other parties in Austria. Austria is a parliamentary republic like most of the other countries in Europe, and so no party is strong enough to take over the government by itself, and right? you know, they can't be an outright majority. And so the other parties would just refuse to be in coalition with them until 2000, uh, in which time they were actually a member of a coalition with another conservative party, one of the other major parties in Austria. Technically, they were actually bigger than that other party, but because they were, you know, an extreme right-wing party, totally unused to actually holding power and were unused to and unprepared for executing it, they were actually the junior partner in that coalition. Similarly, in France, we have we have another example of a right-wing party achieving more success than it was prepared for. Uh, the 2000s was the first time that the Le Pen family's party, uh, the National Front in France, was in the French presidential election in the second round. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the father of Marianne Le Pen, the leader of the party today, uh, unexpectedly got to the second round of the French election in 2002. This was due to a surprisingly bad result for the leftist candidate and led to him, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, facing off against the president of France, a conservative, Jacques Chirac. 
who was, like I said, already the president. He was the incumbent. And uh, his uh, facing off against the extreme right-wing candidate, Jean-Marie Le Pen, meant that everybody voted for Chirac, giving him the winningest election result in French presidential election history. Uh, that's going all the way back to 1848, the first direct presidential election that France ever had. Uh, actually, um, a right-wing figure won that election, uh, Louis-Napoleon, uh, the uh, eventual second emperor of France. Uh, but this election result was the first time that the National Front was in the second round of the French presidential election, and it was the beginning of mainstream political presence for the National Front party. And that is a position that it unfortunately continues to hold and enjoy today. Uh, the National Front now really seriously contests these second-round presidential elections. Remember that um, Marianne Le Pen, Jean-Marie Le Pen's daughter, also was in the second round of a French presidential election last month, where she finished essentially at a normal level. You know, she got over 40% of the vote. Moving on to the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom Independence Party was founded in the 1990s. However, it got mainstream success in the 2000s. The United Kingdom Independence Party, primarily known by its acronym UKIP, uh, became more influential through the 2000s, uh, largely under the leadership of their uh, almost permanent leader in this time period, Nigel Farage. Now, the UKIP party and Farage are specifically important because of what they would do later in the 2000s. This, this is stuff that they would do in the 2010s. UKIP was a primary ideological figure um, and proponent of the Brexit campaign. And this was as a result of their anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim position on essentially, especially British immigration. You know, they, they opposed European Union immigration policies, and that's why they said that Britain needed to leave the EU. Moving on to Italy, there are other examples of extreme right-wing organizations founded in Italy at this time, but one of the ones that's uh, the most interesting uh, in that it is different from a political party, like the ones that we're talking about so far, uh, this is Casa Pound, a student occupation of a government building in Rome, uh, which eventually became a sort of fascist commune. Uh, it's a student-run organization, or at, least at this time it was a you know youth-run organization that promoted extreme right-wing, even fascist ideology. They claim themselves to be of the third position. Uh, this is something that fascists often say when they're trying to hide their specific fascist nature. Uh, it's something that fascists have been saying for quite some time. You know, the claim is that they were a third position, not liberals with a, you know, a, a lowercase l, like classical liberals, and not the left, like not communists. There's something different. Uh, what they mean is that they are fascists. Eventually, Casa Pound would go on to actually field some presidential candidates or political candidates in general in Italy, but at this time, it was a sort of like cultural house, that sort of thing. Uh, the name is a reference to Ezra Pound, the poet and fascist sympathizer who found refuge in Mussolini's Italy during World War II, Ezra Pound being a clear example of a intellectual who became enamored of fascism and decided to lend his, uh, his voice and ideology to it. Moving on to the United States, when we talk about the right wing in the United States, we are talking about, well, one of the things is the Tea Party. Now, the Tea Party was a supposedly libertarian gathering of United States conservatives opposed to government spending, taxes, stuff like that. 
uh, it eventually would morph into a major, like, middle America, middle-aged white protest movement. Uh, it eventually developed from local protests connected to Ron Paul's candidacy for president in 2008 to a major anti-government and eventually anti-Obama movement. Now, the Tea Party's position was uh, dominated by the uh, rhetoric and pomp uh, of their pretending to be the legacy of the first Tea Party, which was an event during the United States Revolutionary War period in which the white colonists in the British colonies uh, disposed of tea that the British were sending over to the Americas in order to uh, protest its taxation. Uh, so the Tea Party is an anti-taxation organization, and in the United States, those organizations are typically associated with white people, whiteness, and the suburbs and rural areas who are opposed to what they consider to be the unfair moving of their wealth, uh, wealth that they consider to be theirs by right, to people of color and to people who live in major cities. When, of course, uh, in fact, major cities are the ones in the United States that provide the most taxes and that money actually flows to rural areas and to the suburbs as opposed to the other way around. Now, the Tea Party was associated with birtherism, a, another thing that maybe you were fortunate enough to forget about from the early 21st century, but here it is. Birtherism was a conspiracy that uh, said that Barack Obama, then presidential candidate and eventually president, was not actually a United States citizen and that he had lied on his birth certificate uh, saying that he was born in Hawaii and that he was instead born in Kenya, which is the birth country of his father. Now, this conspiracy theory is obviously racist, disgusting, um, and connects to like white supremacist ideology, the idea that in order to be a person of Barack Obama's race, he couldn't have possibly been born in the United States, or that he was lying about it for some reason. You know, no, nobody questions the, the birth situation of white presidential candidates, despite the fact that Barack Obama's opponent in the 2012 presidential election, John McCain, was in fact not born in the United States. He was born in Panama. Um, however, the important thing about birtherism is that it was originally the, the major political position of Donald Trump, who talked a lot about this idea that Barack Obama was not born in the United States in his aborted presidential bid in 2012. Now, Trump would continue to spend the years between 2012 and 2016 claiming that, you know, Obama maybe wasn't born in the United States, uh, demanding Barack Obama's birth certificate, demanding his full birth certificate, that is his full medical record. Uh, the Obama presidential office did, in fact, then release his birth certificate to the world in 2013, I think. Um, but Trump didn't care. You know, he still claimed that like, well, you know, we don't know. I, I don't know if it was his real birth certificate. Precisely the kind of blathering and back and forth uh, ignorance of facts that Donald Trump would eventually be famous for. And if you are looking for evidence of Donald Trump's persistent racism and his persistent desire and willingness to use extreme racist conspiracy theories in order to capture the fringes of United States politics and bring them to the mainstream. Birtherism is a perfect example of this. Finally, unfortunately, I have to close out this period in United States history by talking about it as the origin of the alt-right. 
And in order to do that, I have to talk about a person named Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer is a fascist and would-be academic, and he attempted to be the face of a rising wave of extreme right-wing ideology in the United States in the late 2000s. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9. Uh, at the time, though, at the specific time, he was in graduate school. Uh, he attended Duke, but dropped out of his PhD program in order to lead or attempt to lead this rising tide of right-wing ideology. Spencer and his ilk became associated with white identity politics, with neo-Nazism, and were eventually the bridge between Trump's campaign and what would become the alt-right. Now, Richard Spencer did this by working with various think tanks and also publishing on a blog of his own called alternativeright.com. Spencer and another right-wing ideologue, an actually significantly older person named Paul Gottfried, coined the term alt-right, alternative right, to refer to their new ideology. They did this because they knew, obviously, that just saying, like, hey, we're fascists wouldn't really work in the United States in the late 2000s, at least not yet. There are some people who are just, like, doing that now, and they're just, they're just saying, hey, I'm a fascist in the United States. Uh, but at the time, they knew that they needed something more palatable, something different, and also something to differentiate themselves from the neoconservatives who had dominated the Republican Party throughout the 2000s under the presidency of George W. Bush, and also who were rising in the 1990s. So they coined this term alt-right, alternative right, uh, and also its sort of subterms, the alt-light, uh, which were supposed to be people who were, unlike Spencer, not exactly neo-Nazis, but like who were on the right wing and who believed in previously inconceivably unpalatable things, uh, you know, like IQ differences or the idea that certain people, uh, like as in certain people of certain races were more susceptible or naturally uh, positioned to social domination or enslavement, uh, which is the sort of stuff that these people talked about. Uh, this is the sort of thing that these people advocated and justified. And as we move into the next episode, I will talk more and more about how that ideology stemmed directly into Donald Trump's presidential election in 2016. The late 2000s was also the origin of a lot of other right-wing ideological points becoming mainstream ones in the United States, largely on the internet. This was the origins of the sort of manosphere intellectual position, uh, which is the male supremacist feature part of the extreme right-wing in the United States. This is also the origins of the traditionalist blogger Curtis Yarvin, aka Mencius Moldbug. He was still operating under that kind of ridiculous pseudonym at the time. Uh, so the late 2000s are the staging ground for the eventual wide mainstream successes that the right wing would feel and experience in the 2010s. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. K. Johnson. Thank you, Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about it. Uh, if you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right or fascism 15. And again, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.